Park. It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedurals, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 42, Vespers. My name is Paul Abbott, and to review this book, I'm joined by Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello there. From our respective places of residence, because although we're now in Tier 2, we still can't meet up inside face-to-face, and it's frankly too cold to stand in the garden and do this (laughs) at the moment. Anyway, as you well know by now, you can find us everywhere online just by searching for Hark87 Podcast, or you can email us at hark87podcast at gmail.com, and we do love hearing from you, and we'll always happily tackle any questions or queries you have about the 87th Precinct, Ed McBain, or anything, really. So, that's that. Are you both all right? Not too bad, thanks. Yep, fine. Yep, given the circumstances, I think we're all doing okay, relatively speaking. Uh, As we head towards the festive, or we're in the festive period, I suppose. I think uh, there's a lot of lights up already, isn't there? Lots of trees, lights, etc. Yep. I can well understand why people want a little bit of uh, um, illumination and a little bit of warmth and friendliness around this time of year. Yeah, I'm sure when I was a lad, though, he didn't get the decorations up for some time yet. <laughs> no, no, I think it has crept back into the month a lot more. And I think this this year people are being even more sort of willing to just put all the stuff up yeah. early. I, I would normally give it at least another week, but I must admit we've got our tree up at the moment. Yeah. I'm quite welcoming its, uh, its festive glow. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. It's, it's tr- tre- treeriness. Treary, treariness. <laughs> Very good. Very wood. <laughs> oh dear. <God. laughs> this is how it's going to go. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Well, book forty-two, Vespers. Anyway, let's get away from cheeriness and talk about McBain. Uh, oh God. Or rather, let's talk about nineteen ninety because this book is copyright registered on the third of January nineteen ninety, and so I'll do my usual bits uh, bits from nineteen ninety. I've only picked a little selection here, but I can remember nineteen ninety with quite some clarity. So uh, most of these things I I remember very well. Well, I'll tell you one thing I don't re- remember very well is on the eighteenth of March nineteen ninety. 12 paintings worth between 100 and 300 million dollars are stolen from a museum in Boston. That's Boston, Massachusetts, not Boston, Lincolnshire. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably worth more than Boston, Lincolnshire put together. But yeah, two robbers disguised as policemen basically waltz in and take these 12 paintings it's the largest ever art theft of, or the and also the largest ever theft of private property. And to this day, none of them have been recovered. Wow, I don't so remember a, that at all. How strange! It's audacious. The way they are. They followed up leads connected to the mafia, I think, but so far nothing. It's like things like Vermeers and Rembrandts and Manet and Degas, things like that. So these are big, famous pieces of art that you can't put anywhere or show anyone (laughs) that's that's the weird thing about like stolen art isn't it yeah so yeah probably probably not in some despot then because uh he he would they would entertain people wouldn't they in their residences and get spotted yeah absolutely so 
who knows? But yeah, so that's something that uh, passed us by in 1990 anyway, yeah. being as we were, what, 11 and 12 years old at the time, yes. perhaps weren't uh, focused on that aspect of the news. I do remember this, though, on the subject of weird things happening in governments. 19th of May, do you remember what the agricultural minister, John Selwyn Gummer, did? Did he eat a beef burger? Did he force his child to eat a beef oh, burger? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so in the mad cow disease outbreak, <laughs> the, the BSE outbreak, we had uh, a British a British member of the cabinet feeding his daughter a beef burger to try and say, oh, cow, you know, beef's fine. And it's just always been remembered as one of the maddest stunts that anyone's ever done. Another class act from the Tories. Fantastic. Yeah. Very strange. <laughs> but what else have we got going on? We've got August is summer and fun and uh, Iraq invading Kuwait leading to the Gulf War. All right, yeah. Which we're essentially still dealing with to this day. Mm. Uh, slightly more positive political news. 3rd of October is the official date of German reunification. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. of course, yeah. So no longer East and West. All squashed back together into a happy lump of Germany. <laughs> Uh, so yeah but that's good and November our Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher loses a leadership contest in the Conservative Party oh she does yeah teary teary eyed leaving Downing Street indeed see you later (laughs) hey ho (laughs) and we get John Major in so he becomes Prime Minister in uh, in November there's not many caricatures of anybody who's uh Involve is a, a total made-up love of peas. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, his caricature on spitting image was just literally him entirely grey, and he liked peas. <laughs> it's just so silly, that biting satire there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and something in December. So basically, it's the seventh of December as we're recording this, and this should be coming out on the eighth of December. And the eighth of December, nineteen ninety. I remember this very clearly massive snowfall across the uk so i don't know what it was like where you guys were in in, in carlisle and in, in yorkshire uh-huh. but um or thereabouts it's i remember because we'd moved to stoke in september of that year and we had a really really heavy winter and this and it was the 8th of december so i wonder if you remember it being a very wintry one I, I don't. I kind of. I don't know. I, I seem to remember quite a lot of snow every winter. Is my yeah. perception yeah. of my childhood whether that is just nonsense or not? I don't know. But I, I feel the same. Yeah, it, 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 we did oft, quite often have a fair old bit of snow, so it doesn't stand out particularly. No, well, I mean, but so did we because I lived in up in Yorkshire mm, as well until we'd moved to Stoke. It was just it was just notable because it had, we'd been there for you know only two or three months, and then suddenly there was a really really big snowfall. I think it's because it was quite rare outside of of the places that usually got it heavy snowfall. Cool. So you know we might wake up tomorrow. There might have been heavy snowfall across the UK. Yeah, I don't know. That's true, yeah. Yeah, a fair amount of snow normally where Morgan and I are from, I suppose. Nice high ground. Indeed. Right. Well, that's that's some stuff in uh, about 1990 there. I won't linger on any more things. There's so much going on now that I remember that for all of these little trivia bits and pieces, I it's like, well, there's too much to pick from now because I remember more or less all of this. So let's not linger on it too much, but uh, have a quick look at the what uh, McBain was getting up to in in this period 
and not masses really in terms of output he puts out three blind mice which is a matthew hope novel and it apparently appears on a japanese program whose title is midnight journal in november of 1990 but i can't find out anything about it because again i've said this before when researching japanese stuff i don't speak japanese or read it you know either but yeah he appears and i suspect that was to do with uh, publicity for three blind mice because according to his archive, he did a, a promotional tour for William Heinemann, which is his UK publisher in 1989-1990. Hmm. So I wonder whether he actually did do that or whether he was sort of warned off it after his heart attack. Uh, possibly. Cause, yeah, because I've seen not much evidence of it. But there is quite a bit of stuff where he's giving interviews and things. Hmm. And there was a, a an interesting article in the Washington Post called Ed McBain's Mysterious Method <laughs> when he was on his... Um, publicity tour for three three blind mice and it's it's worth mentioning because this was november 1990 it's worth mentioning because there's a couple of interesting things in there it talks about the computer he uses he's got an apple 2e computer very early apple computer and i'm sure i've read or heard a couple of times him say no i don't put myself in my books we've since debunked that over and over and over again but he does say in this one he says heck i could charge off all of my life on my income taxes it all winds up in the books. <laughs> Can contradict himself. And the other thing that I thought was interesting about this was sometimes readers suggest ideas. A blind reader wrote, wrote McBain that surely Corella must be making enough money to afford a TDD, the telecommunication device for the deaf, oh. which was featured in that other book we did. Oh, right. Okay. So that came from a reader suggestion. Cool. Sometimes he hears stories that are transmutable. Ghosts, an 87th Precinct story. Oh. Is, yeah, I know. I was going to say boo, I was going to say boo, but then that sounds like me doing a ghost noise. Uh, but yeah, apparently that's based on a, a story a friend once told him about a house where his family lived. They didn't mind the doors opening and closing by themselves, but when they heard the ball bouncing in the attic, it was time to go. So some little snippets there from, oh. from different things. And, oh, it does also mention that he's... At this point, by November of 1990, he sells up in um, Sarasota, Florida. So he moves on, goes, just becomes uh, back up in Norwalk, Connecticut anymore. So we might see less about Florida in the future books from here on in. Right. On to Vespers. Facts and figures. Publishes in US hardback, William Morrow & Co. 1990. It's the second of five books from them. So it's still in Avon for the US Softback in 1991. William Heinemann. It's the first of three in William Heinemann in the UK. And the UK Softback is in Mandarin. So there's been, like like we've said for the last couple of episodes, some changes in publishers, which has affected things like the cover designs we look at and things like that. And, well, we better get stuck into it, really. Mm-hmm. I mean... There's a certain thing with these these last couple of books, or certainly the the book before this and this one. I'm not I'm not mad keen on digging into the specifics of it because it's again quite got quite a lot of grotty bits in it. But if we open it up, the first thing we see is a dedication to Anne Edwards and Steve Citron, which are great names. They certainly are. Find out anything about them? Uh, I found a little bit, yeah. Yeah, you sound like a joke name, Steve Citron. So, well, it's like a yeah. car, really. Because <laughs> like, the, the Citron call, I'm sure they went through a spell of calling the cars after like people's names. So, 
Maybe Citron Steve. <laughs> but yeah, I bet you there's fewer couples ever who were married who wrote more biographies of generally middle-of-the-road people than one can imagine. But um, ah. no, they, they, well, I think here the connection must be um, Cincinnati because I did read that they, uh, Anne Edwards certainly lived in Cincinnati, uh, Connecticut, sorry, um, yeah. in the middle chunk of her life, which would have All been right. certainly 60s, 70s, I think, maybe 80s. Right, so they might have been part of that literary set that he had around him up there. Yeah, and born mid-20s, so both of them. So does yeah, that yeah. put them the same age as Ed McBain yeah, well, as well? he was 26, yeah. Yeah so, yeah, so same age, same city, so no doubt same kind of crowd, really. Anne Edwards, I believe, from what I can gather, is certainly the most um, famous of the two. Uh, Steve Citron wrote... I couldn't really find much about his songwriting other than it just being mentioned that he had wrote songs for the likes of Liza Minnelli and Edith Piaf. Um, But I think he was more popular for a 1985 book on songcraft, which you can still get now, actually. which was supposedly a bit of a landmark book, but um, has some fairly amusing quotes that I was reading on a... (laughs) (laughs) Judges all music against Cole Porter. Oh, blimey. That's what some person said. Uh, Dismisses hip-hop as an illegitimate form of art. (laughs) Bloody hell. So, yeah, I think he's a, a bit of a... Stuck in the past. Yes, I, th- I think so, yes. Um, but uh, amongst that uh, as well, he, he wrote uh, biographies uh, of Noel Coward. Noel Coward, good. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, not so good. Uh, <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe, and then Queen Elizabeth. So a fairly eclectic mix of topics yeah. there. yeah. But uh, Anne Edwards was certainly more prolific and I think did fairly popular, well-received biographies, the likes of Princess Diana and Maria Callas and a few on Ronald Reagan as well. So fairly odd topics. Quite a lot of like the um, Hollywood golden era, like Vivian Lee and Catherine Hepburn. Nice. Hmm. So, yeah, I think that's what she kind of like specialised in. Um, so yeah, I think reasonably well known and still still alive, Anne Edwards. All oh, right. Um, yeah. So there you go. Some you know reasonably uh, famous um, dedication, but yeah, uh, how they have by any r- r- link resemblance whatsoever to this plot uh, oh. is non-existent. I would say. Fair enough. Unless they're secret devil worshippers. <laughs> which you wouldn't necessarily find from a bit of uh, internet digging, digging. No, perhaps not. And Steve uh, Citron looks very, very jolly on his photo, so I can't believe for a minute he dabbled in uh, black magic. The happy Satanist. Oh, uh, yeah. So they're a, a biographical power couple. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely, yeah. I did find out one extra thing about Anne Edwards, and that was she was a writer for some stuff in in pictures in Hollywood for a little while, but she was blacklisted as part of the House of Un-American Activities Committee. So she went she went through some of that uh, business as well. Yeah, it's funny how she'd write do a biography on uh, uh, Reagan biographies about like Reagan's early years, as it were. 
So yeah, that, that's fu- uh, funny. Yeah, she, she was commissioned to do write a book upon which they were then going to make a film, which was going to be the sequel to Gone with the Wind. Oh, uh, which oh. never happened and got scrapped. I think a few well. people have had a crack at that, haven't they, over the years? But, yeah, that was in the seventies, yeah. I think. So yeah. Wow. Well, there we go. I mean, that's quite a lot of information for a dedicatee in a, in, in a book. Yeah, so. I think so, yeah, because most, well, we've had somewhere we don't even know anything about them. But, yeah, it seems to be, uh, obviously, McBain always likes putting a lot of thing in about theatre, doesn't he, in a lot of these books. And so there's certainly a literary, theatre people yeah. in both of them. It's- Excellent stuff. All right, there we go. So it's a very interesting start to the mm-hmm. to that. So we flick past that. We flick past the city in this page as is imaginary, and we get into the book. Now, our, I probably should ask: Have we all read it before? I've read it before once. I had read it before once as well. Same here. Yeah. Okay. And it's not one I've gone back to very often. And. Mm. I'll say up front, I'm not likely to go back to it quickly again after this, I don't think. But, you know, we'll see how we come out. Yeah. It's a pretty big book, though, isn't it? I mean, it's... In paperback, it's 330-odd pages. So that's, that's a fairly dense paperback. There's, there's a, a fair bit going on in it as well. But I suppose i better ask uh, initial opinions, and I'll, I shall come to Morgan for some, some opening thoughts. It's another odd one, isn't it? it? Like with Lullaby, I'd kind of... I'd remembered sort of the general tone of it, but I... And one of the kind of... Some of the main plot points, but I'd forgotten a lot of the grottier bits, which I wasn't that mm. happy to remember. <laughs> I don't know if I just blanked them out or if I just... Those were the bits that just didn't stick. But uh, yeah, it's, it was it was odd coming back to it and going, oh, yeah. Hmm. What about you, Steve-O? Yeah, yeah, pro- pro- f- fairly similar, really. You always, it always kind of sticks in your head that there's some maybe slightly weird entries at this time, and it's probably like reading this back, I'm probably thinking, yeah, this is kind of what I was thinking of, really. Uh, my memory being terrible, as per usual, I couldn't really remember um, how, how the plot panned out, really. But um, certain aspects of, uh, of it I, I did quite enjoy in terms hmm. of the plot, plotting and whatnot. Yeah. But my overarching opinion, it's a fairly paints a fairly bleak picture, doesn't it? You know, and I, I know, <laughs> just a bit. I, I know some of them do, but I, you know, when I finished it, I thought. You know, it's a fairly pessimistic, bleak outlook on this place, really, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. Everything it's... that goes on, and I thought maybe more so than than any other of these entries we've read. I just thought, you know, it's fairly well. You know, miserable's not the word, but it's just like you know that it's a book that has virtually zero joy contained in yeah. it. There's certainly you know, aside from the devil worshipping bits, which I think you can read in a certain ridiculousness, yeah. but yeah. they're certainly lacking in a lot of the eighty seventh bingo elements. There's not many comic characters, and yeah, fairly, fairly, uh, fairly, de- you know, not depressing, but um, bleak. But in certain aspects, quite good for that. Mm. In, in in certain respects, though. 
I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing to have a, a slightly different tone, but I do, I do feel like he's on a bit of a, a pessimistic streak at the moment. Yeah. His, uh, well, you had that. You've got that um, uh, omnibus edition, haven't I, you, Morgan? I have, which I keep meaning to to copy the the the, the introduction, and send it over to you. Unfortunately, the camera on my phone seems to have completely stopped working but i will get a picture taken and get i want you to write it out by hand in your best handwriting maybe i'll do that then and send it over by pigeon because yeah he does definitely you you do get a a bit of an insight into the the frame of mind he's he's in um as he's writing the this three books particularly there's um yeah, no accident. The crimes in this trilogy are particularly uncivilized. They speak of a resurgence of, if not evil, which is after all a theological concept, and certainly mercilessness. Yes. And uh, that's the wow. frame of mind he's in at this point, I think. Well, if that's his frame of mind, he's nailed it really in in a novel format, hasn't he? Yeah, I think so. I know you've got to keep in mind, I mean, New York at the time, and we've said it since the sort of 70s particularly, but New York in 1990 is still really, really bad. And the crack epidemic is huge and yeah. dominating policing and all sorts. You know, and I suppose by, by, by 1990, if, you know, people have been living, you know, I don't really know all, 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 you know, all you can read or seen in films and whatnot. But, you know, I suppose people have been living with, with it for 20 years, haven't they, by this yeah. point? Plus, you know, uh, and so, yeah, I suppose I suppose it does. It is born out in um, pieces of work such as this, really. Uh, Although I wonder really where, I mean, yeah, if you've got a depressing enough thing taken from real life, which is, say, a city racked by um, the drugs problem and then, of course, all the other societal problems, which includes things like AIDS as well, which, again, is mentioned mm. in, in the book. There's emergence of new drugs that haven't been mentioned before in this book as, as well. Um, but then to stick on top of that or alongside it, Satanism! <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's the one that shocked me, really, because I remembered this was a book that had something to do with black masses in it. But it's not Hammer Horror black masses. It's, it's um, yeah. I don't know. You see, like... As soon as I start reading those passages, all I can think about is like the daft Hammer horror films. So yeah. they, they don't really strike any f- any fear, you know, because he, he kind of reveals them for the fairly ridiculousness that they are, aren't they? So yeah, they're the, sort of um, orgies by any other name, aren't they? Basically, yeah. yeah. They're, uh, they're, they're not, not particularly terrifying Satanists on, on the whole. Uh... Well, you know, but... But 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 a lot of the devices he does use in the you know the main central one regarding witness testimony that that's that's the the vein that runs through all the um, all the book is is nonetheless an interesting one and I think mm. a, 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 a quite an interesting device that he uh, deploys and there's a slight twisty very end isn't there that I must admit I'd totally forgotten about and I thought was quite a nice twist at the very very yeah. very end. Yeah, well, I mean, to give the plot an overview, we've got the main plot is a priest is killed. This happens in the very first few pages. A priest is killed. This ties into uh, the possibility that um, it's connected to a child he saved from a beating, a young person that he saved from a beating. We've also got, at the same time, a re-emergence of Hal Willis's girlfriend, Marilyn Hollis. Her backstory, her life, as we discovered back in Poison, has come back to haunt her so that's a whole other strand of stuff and to add into this we've also got this satanism thing 
alongside it. But essentially, the main point of this book is the investigation of the murder of this priest. Uh And that's, you know, it's quite easy to sum this up, unlike Lullaby, where we had so many twists and turns and gangs and double crosses and triple crosses and all that sort of stuff, which is quite hard to to pin down, really. Yes. Uh, This is technically quite straightforward, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, I suppose it's just co- you know what was happening to the priest uh, close to his death is fairly convoluted, and there's quite a lot. And so it's quite is it having an eventful period of, in his life, really, isn't he, for a priest? And so they they're not sure which of these remarkable events is connected to his death, if any. Because one of them involves a um, a child coming into the, um, the the church just short uh, in the days before his death, I think, doesn't he? Being chased mm. by a mob, and then the fallout from that, and it, it's the witness testimony that related to that, and also a a woman seen with the uh, priest at a similar time. It's all the reliable and unreliable witness yeah. testimony to that that forms yeah Rashomon cent- yeah the central Absolutely. the meat of the book really I suppose isn't it and how it takes them piece by piece by piece speaking to one witness then another and then another to work out slowly paint a picture of what actually accurately happened and as, yeah. soon, and as soon as they work that out they, they ultimately um, uh, find the solution don't they have we all seen Rashomon I have not. No, neither have I. Oh, it's a brilliant sure. film. So yeah. obviously, it's it's re- referred to in here a lot, and it's I think it's a, it's a bit of a uh, it's a watchword for the, the the technique here, isn't it? Of of having multiple re- narrators of a, of the same event, yeah. yeah, none of whom are lying necessarily, but they all have different perspectives. Yeah, yeah. it's the. Uh... There's, there's certainly a couple of like Dario Argento films that deploy that. One where, right at the beginning of the film, is Gallo, um, where you see a murder being committed and you, you think you've seen it, and you you have, but you just totally misinterpret what's happened. Yeah, and it's you know they're very clever. Quite it's it's like anything. Once it's totally explained to at the end, it's it's like so bleedingly obvious isn't it <laughs> but the, the the fun is in your misunderstanding your misinterpretation of of something that you think you understand yeah Rashomon's an amazing film and obviously it's an Akira Kurosawa film yeah. and stars Toshiro Mifune who of course are make high and low based on King's Ransom as well so I wonder if that was in McBain's mind it must have been really this feels like his little nod to to Kurosawa is yeah. mentioning of, of of Rashomon here, yeah. which is, as I say, remains the best adaptation of any eighty seventh precinct story. Anyway, definitely. So, so that's nice. So what else have we got going on here? I, I will say actually, um, when I put out the call for people's thoughts on this, our friend Matthew Sullivan mentioned no Monaghan and Munro in this one. That's no, true. That's... Yeah. I would like to know, right, when the homicide actually investigate a homicide because they don't seem to do it even when they've got the most high-profile murders. So, yeah. I'm pretty certain they don't ever do anything other than turn up wearing hats and making appropriate jokes. No. So one wonders in reality if this is a true reflection of the structure (laughs) of uh, 
the NYPD whether they whether that whether they do ever get involved. But yes, they're not here. And as I say, not um, not so many eighty seventh bingo elements really. Yeah, yeah very 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 little talk about the weather or the city and the street. Yeah, there's some different approaches to those things, but yeah. not 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 the deep dense sort of yeah. usual thing that you'd get as well. No, strip strip back on that. I, I thought. Yeah, so maybe that's a good point. Maybe that's why it feels like a weird one, really. I hadn't really twigged that that was the case because you can sort of get hints of it and you sort of think you've had that experience. Uh, but like when when Matthew pointed out there was no Monaghan and Monroe, I hadn't consciously sort of gone, oh, yeah. But I suppose in a way that if you put Monaghan and Monroe in, even though they had them in uh, Lullaby, where they were having psychological problems dealing with that crime... Uh, if you put them in this one, they would be comic. And what he's wanting to do instead is is <laughs> torture poor Steve Carella again by making him question his faith, questioning his job, break down in tears, worrying about his job and all this sort of stuff. So, he, you know, Steve Carella at this point has to bear an intense burden like we've not seen for a long time in these books, if at all, really. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, certainly a conscious decision to strip away a lot of the frivolity, you know, the... Uh, the amusing. There's no comedy characters in here, I don't think, is there? No, not at all. You know, no. the guy with the stupid name who's a bit of a, you know, funny witness or whatever. The closest you come to that is the way you, the, the guy who's had the argument with the the vicar, who's yeah. a bit of a suspect to start with, who's wrote a bit of a crackpot letter, who they go mm. and meet in his tailor's shop and comes across as a little. A little, he comes across as a bit zany, doesn't he? Yeah. But he does in that sequence. Yeah, and then but you, you start to get the impression that there's a is a little bit more to him, and then obviously in the second half of the book, there's there is a lot more to him in a totally, ultimately unconnected but horrible way. And yes, he's rather vile. But my vote for the closest to comedy characters would be the um, the little. Um, gang of Satanists to go and visit the squad room. Yeah, yes. I suppose so. Yeah, they're sort of eccentric by, by their yeah, their behaviour, aren't they, rather? But in a totally different way to the, you know, jolly fat man that always seems to turn up in so many of the other books and, Quite, and, yeah. and say something. They're like weird hippies out of time, in a way, I think Definitely. he sort of describes them. Yeah, the Satanists are a fairly strange <laughs> part of this book, aren't they? <laughs> Yeah, they are. I mean, it's. I will say, it's. I understand what you mean about this sort of because we're so steeped in Satanism being the subject of horror films like Hammer Horror, and it's all quite camp and sort of that bright Kensington Gore blood and and all that business and, and stuff. So we find it quite funny, really. He's trying, but there's bits of this where he's got like young people involved inside the ceremonies, and that's really like, Ugh, mm, that's a bit that's alarming, not, yeah, yeah. And it gets, you know, it's. We know that he gets a bit porny at the moment with some of these books, and he, he uses them as an excuse to discuss sex things, nasty, nasty public sex rituals, which is not pleasant at all. Quite. <laughs> <laughs> not what we want. Yeah, but I mean, I'll just, I will mention one or two quick things, and then I think what we should talk about is we should talk about Marilyn Hollis, really. Because other than the A plot being this investigation of the, the priest thing and, and the Rashomon stuff, it's, uh, you know, that's a, that's fairly 
like I say, straightforward, a few twists and turns, but that's the main thing. Uh, I'll mention a few bits and pieces I found, like um, we all spot the bit about time in the precinct, about... Yes. What's he say, Morgan? It's... Here we go. Um, yeah, sometimes time seemed elastic to him, a concept that could uh, be bent at will, twisted to fit ever-changing needs. Who is to say the twins were not now 30 years old rather than 11? Who is to say that he and Teddy were not still the the young marrieds they'd been back then? Time. A concept as confusing to Corella as that of, well, God. Yeah. <laughs> so we are, <laughs> it's as meta as he gets as usual there, really. <laughs> There's no denying the, the, the time twisting and he's, he's thoroughly acknowledged it completely there, especially <laughs> by reference to the twins, because in the book they're only 11. <laughs> they should be in their 30s or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I, I, that's a brilliant moment, I think, in there as well. There's another reference to Hill Street Blues when Hawes is thinking about an ex-girlfriend who went up for an audition for it. Can't oh. resist it, can he? No. <laughs> Just got to keep picking at that scab. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a quick reference to Lizzie Borden, of course, was a subject of one of his books. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And because um, a lot of this is, is taking place in Steve's head when he's thinking about what's, you know, or if they can do this to a priest or a baby or whatever. And he's, he's having this, this sort of, even though he's got no faith at this point, he's having a crisis of faith, which is an interesting thing. But mm. where there's a sequence where Corella re- remembers going to church to confess sins. So, yeah, he recalls the last time he went to church, you know, other than for his sister's wedding, I think it is. Mm. And he goes to, <laughs> he goes to confess, he says, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is six months since my last confession. There was a silence behind the screen. Corella waited. And then the priest said, And you pick the busiest time of the year to come? <laughs> now that, I've already heard that story from Evan Hunter being interviewed, telling it about himself. <laughs> so that was it. That was the last time Evan Hunter was in a church, was when that happened, or Sal Lombino, as it would have been, Amazing. happened. That's that's just him. That's a story from his life. <laughs> There, so, uh, just can you imagine that though? You sort of you work yourself up to go into this thing to to confess your sins, and it's not something I've ever experienced. Never been no. Catholic, but it, and then this guy's like, "Oh, I'm busy." <laughs> yeah. So those are some little snippets of yeah. of, of things there, aren't they? It, it, does he manage to get in another sly reference to birth date of great men as well? Somewhere? Oh yes, yes he does. Yeah, I he's, thought I spotted one of those. Yeah, any time the 15th of October is mentioned, <laughs> he, he crowbars in a reference to it being the birth date of great men. Right, so anyway, Marilyn Hollis. We've only met her a couple of books ago. We know that she was indentured, let's say, in prostitution in, in South America. She now thinks she's free of it, but the phone rings. It's a Spanish-speaking voice. What do we think about this plot? Yeah, you can't help but think he's... Just because Burt Kling's not in the this book, he just picks on another of his detectives to give them as miserable a life as possible. Yeah. Yeah, it's a funny one, really. You can't really talk about it without kind of giving away what happens, but you wonder why he feels compelled to wreck misery on his characters, and especially quite an interesting character as well that maybe could have developed some more really yeah you'd have thought that there was more potential for sort of creating interesting complications for hal in the future with that situation but he's obviously decided rather to just um 
bring the 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 that whole plot line to a head sooner rather than later really yeah and it uh, the idea for the lasting implications though for what that would mean in the real world for the thing mm. that happens to a police officer <laughs> or a police officer's partner i'm sure is not reflected in what will happen in the well. future books but it's yeah it's it's an interesting one that the, you will introduce a significant character you'll build up hal willis so we find out much more about him over the last mm. two or three books about his attitudes and the way he would act in certain situations. Like, I love the fact that him and Marilyn go along with Bob O'Brien and his date to <laughs> a, uh, an apartment viewing just because it's also a cocktail party. Yeah, to try <laughs> yeah Bob O'Brien just wants to get the free booze, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's, he's even worried about going to a cocktail party with him in case sh- some shooting starts. <laughs> But yeah, so yeah, you got Bob O'Brien's girlfriend for the first time. I don't know whether we ever see her again, but that's uh, yeah, I'm not sure. No, but He's, that was quite fun. Yeah, so it's it's funny, isn't it? So yeah, just kind of like dispenses with this other character in a fairly, you know, what at the end at the end of the book, fairly predictable kind of way really as soon as it all starts happening you just think oh well i kind of know how this is all gonna end and needless to say it does really so yeah. i don't know a bit of a bit of an odd one really i don't huh. it seems there's some bit... good suspense sequences in there though i think yeah. that you do get yeah. to a point where you're sort of like you're you're really with the character and the suspense is, is handled really quite well yeah yeah maybe maybe yeah, I, I, I think it works pretty well. There's a couple of bits that I was a little less convinced about, like uh, Marilyn managing to to sort of fend off these two sort of career thugs with with a knife. Yeah, uh, which seemed uh, slightly implausible, but I don't know. It's I don't know. It's, I think he's suggesting that because of what she had, how she had to look after herself in the prison all those mm. years ago, she still got. Um, you know physical skills but well, yeah i know what you yeah. mean I, I i can well believe it but yeah these, these two terrifying hoodlums you'd imagine might be a little bit less scared but i, I don't know yeah okay well we better start sort of pulling this pulling this together now and, and coming to some conclusions about it and uh we'll We'll do our summing up, and then uh, then I'll, I'll mention some of the contemporary reviews of the time, of which I have several. Uh, I'm happy to perhaps go first with a summing up and a rating, maybe here, and say I try to work out. I like this more than Lullaby, which I found quite difficult. But I don't know. It's still I could do with those Satanist scenes, <laughs> right? They didn't need to be quite as graphic as they were. No, they really didn't. Because for, for what actually turns out to be, to some extent, a red herring. Yes. Anyway, to some extent. Although, obviously, actions do have repercussions in the other bits of plots and things like that. Uh, another good question, actually, before I forget from uh, from Matthew Sullivan. Uh, he suggests that because we're all a bit more metal than he is, <laughs> do, do, do we think that the portrayal of the Satanist stuff seems like a reaction to media panic around music at the time? I, I was wondering about this while I was, while I was rereading it. I, I don't think that... I mean, I guess there was some kind of worry about that. There was the, the various sort of PMRC-related things to do with, with heavy metal 
in yeah. the late 80s, weren't there? Although it doesn't seem there's no explicit sort of connection to music culture made there, is there? So I, I think no. possibly not. Um, I think you've been writing it another three years or so later when the, the church burning started happen, happening in Norway around the, the black metal scene, there'd be more of a case for that being the case. Yeah. But um, I, 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 I think, although I did wonder about that, I don't think that's really what's happening. Fair enough. Um, and I didn't do any research into Satanism in New York because I didn't want to be typing that into my uh, web browser, <laughs> particularly for worrying about what I might find. But yeah. So anyway, like I say, I could do with I could do with that being perhaps tempered a little bit. And like I say, it's a it's a pretty big book, so you could have lost some of that detail in okay. there and not and not really affected the story in the slightest. I do like, like I say, I do like some of the sense suspense moments, and I do prefer it being a bit of a more straightforward read after Lullaby. As another thing I've said, it is an interesting study of faith or how people how faith lingers even after you've abandoned it and stuff like that and it's interesting to see the weight of the world on steve carella's shoulders reflecting you know how hard it is to be you know to do that job at at that time anyway and yeah so i'm gonna come up with a number or i'm gonna do i'm still gonna be it's still gonna be in the 50s for me i think it's probably a 58 police shields for me this one so I will come to... Well, you made a noise, Morgan, so you can go next. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with oh, what you said, really. Um, I, I do also think it's better than Lullaby. I do also think the, um, the the scenes of Satanism could have been considerably less pornographic without losing anything. Well, I mean, I, I guess part of the point is, is to show that these people are using sort of what's theoretically a religion is just an excuse to be a, a big gang of pervs but you could yes. convey that without actually going into so much graphic detail definitely um but I, I, I do think this is quite a lot better than than lullaby there's there's some good plotting there's there's some good character stuff and i, I feel like i'm going to be a bit more generous and i am going to give this one i think uh, say 68 police shields right oh well you know do what thy will shall be the whole of the law and all that <laughs> steve i think a lot of the like the pervy stuff about the satanists is i don't know perhaps there's a bit more point to it than just his gratuity because isn't he just setting up that abby character right at the end and like like creating like this almost like pantomime demon mm. character isn't he who's you know just willfully destroyed this vicar for no reason other than yeah. just so she can take her pants off kind of thing mm. which was quite you know which was slightly interesting but yeah you, mm. you're right but anyway um but but the the twist at the end is good and yeah. a lot of the plotting is good and yeah, even though it's fairly bleak, it's uh, uh, it's got quite a bit going on. So yeah, I think I'll be sixty-eight as well. I think it's just a just below a seven out of ten kind of hmm. feel to it. Well, appropriately, that think. gives us a, a Kenneth score of sixty-four point six six six. Well, uh, <laughs> but we round down, so 
So it gives it a score of 64 police shields after all. Yeah. No, I think <laughs> I think that's, I think that's right. Yeah, because I, I, I suppose, like, I suppose, just going back to the plot, because like the, the Abbey character who comes along at the very end that kind of ties everything together, not wishing to give it away, but yeah, just like almost motiveless crime, really, and maybe you need all that business around the Satanists to like for that to have any purpose. You know, you'd like to think that yeah. she came first, and therefore the Satanist bit to support her character rather than he just did all the Satanist bit and thought, oh, well, that's a reasonable way to go with that. Mm. And yeah. then, in which case it's, it doesn't hang together as well. Yeah, interesting. If that makes any kind of sense. Well, let's have a look at what some of the contemporary reviewers thought of it at the time. So uh, The Observer, a British newspaper, The Observer, from the 4th of November 1990, Christopher Wordsworth says, uh, although it's misprinted, he does say the 47th precinct. (laughs) The 47th precinct shows no sign of running out of steam and McBain's handling of the triple weave, drugs, Satanism, the murder of a priest, has seldom been more masterful or the writing so ambitious. So a good write-up from The Observer there. The Guardian, British paper again, 11th of October 1990, Matthew Cody. Satanist sexual sacramental free-for-all as boys from 87th Precinct confront druggies, vengeful hoods and slaying of Roman Catholic priest. Holds like handcuffs but does suggest that the solid police procedural base of this long-running series has finally surrendered to the sensational. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, slight, uh, slight sympathy with that view, yeah. Yeah, I uh, let's see. So, where have we got Marilyn Stasio for the, the the New York Times, seventh of January, nineteen ninety? Despite the tone of sobriety in which he addresses Corella's crisis of faith and the heinous crime that set it off, Mister McBain is too good and too shrewd a writer to overstate the soulfulness. His macabre humour livens up the story, as does a tense subplot in which a beautiful woman tries to outwit two professional killers. So, it's uh, Marilyn likes that one anyway. Yeah. Although I don't think it's it's not drenched in in humour, I wouldn't say it's. No, uh, no, definitely not. No. Who else have we got? Gene M. White as well. Uh, well, just quite a big long review. She's generally. I do hope Gene M. White is a woman because I've been calling it. <laughs> I think I've mentioned this before. I didn't actually check. I. Um, <laughs> it, you can be called Gene and not be, but not usually spelt J E A N, are you? Mm. But. No. John. Jean, yeah, Jean. Jean. Unless you called Van Damme. Oh yeah, Jean um, Blanc. Uh, in the death <laughs> of the in the death of the priest, Corella and Hawes find many sinners with secrets. The murderer's identity is a stunner. So is the frightening twist of irony at the end. Oof. Fair enough. Again, there. So yeah. anyway, by and large, I think those are a very fair and and accurate sort of, of things. I perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps a bit more effusive than I imagined, really. <laughs> Again, maybe it's just our viewpoint from now, maybe, compared to the viewpoint from then. Yeah, perhaps. So there we go, then. That was 1990's Vespers. So the next book in the main series we'll be looking at is 1991's Widows, which I haven't read. Ooh. But we will be back this very self-same festive month to deal with and all through the house before too long as well as a little christmas treat to everyone there so dig out your copies of that and uh, make sure you've 
settled your children down and read read it to them in front of the fireplace <laughs> to to cheer them on their way to sleep for, before Santa comes. But yeah, we'll we'll come and we'll do that as well before we get back to you know the main main range and discuss widows. So until then. We'll see you in the bonus episode for some other silliness. But I'm going to say goodbye, as is Steve-O. Goodbye. And Morgan. Farewell. Well.